Dave Max Cork History Matters, brought to you by Red FM. Dr. Tom Spaulding, you're very welcome to this Cork History Matters podcast. I was asking you, uh, how should I introduce you? And then you started off with a whole ream of stuff. <laughs> and I said, you know what, I'll just get you to do it yourself. Uh, would you do me the courtesy of, of introducing yourself, please? I will, Dave. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, my name is Tom Spaulding. Um, I'm a Cork resident of 40 years. Um, I'm a, I have a PhD in architectural and design history. And I've written a number of books on the on the history of Cork City, including um, with Daniel Breen, who's the um, curator of Cork Public Museum, a book on the Cork International Exhibition, 1902. The reason we are chatting is I became aware of a commemoration of the 120th anniversary of the Cork International Exhibition that was held in upstairs in Electric Bar on Grand Parade, on South Mall, I should say, uh, just there by the Peace Park. Mm-hmm. That is the Peace Park. The other one is Bishop Lucy Park. Yes, um, yes, don't get me started. <laughs> and it's the Peace Park because there's a, a, war, a war memorial uh, to, to the, the fallen of World War One. There is that, but there's also um, a Nagasaki Hiroshima right. memorial right. as well that yes. was put up in 1985. So I think that that's when it became the Peace Park, is ah, in the 80s. Gotcha. Really. Yeah. Ohm is the cocktail bar upstairs in Electric. Uh, Ernest is the man who has organised that commemoration of the Cork International Exhibition. Something of which I'm, I'm vaguely familiar. Let me just t- tell you what I know ahead of you Go ahead. Uh, telling me further. Uh, it happened in 1902 and it ran through till 1903. The Lord Mayor at the time was Edward Fitzgerald, after mm-hmm. whom the area where the exhibition was held uh, became Fitzgerald's Park, uh, including the Court Public Museum, which is no doubt why Daniel Breen is as interested in it as he is, although no doubt he's interested in it because he's just interested in history. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, when people like... like History, for some, as a word, might have been something that gives them mad, bad memories of school. For me, it's stories. It's stories about people, stories about things that happened. That mm. if they happened now in your lifetime, you'd be all about them. But mm-hmm. they happened in other people's lifetimes and they were exciting things. Mm. Uh, and they shaped, uh, they're part of Cork's story and Cork's history. Um, and one of the things that I know about this is there's some super photos, one of which, look at, I see it there in front of me. It's, ah, yes. it's a super slide down into the river. So, the... I'll tell you, um, um, I, who is your man that wrote the book? A short, it's not a short history of everything, but I read all about the, the International Exhibition of 1851 at the Crystal Palace. Right, yes, that, that was, was built, kind of where it all kicked off. Uh, Bill, Bill, Bill Bryant, is it? Or Bill oh, Bryson. Bill Bryson wrote yeah. a fabulous book. I don't even know. I think it was The History of a House. Yeah. <laughs> and anyway, it talked about the, the Great Exhibition of 1851 and the Crystal Palace that was built, and it's mm. just marvellous stories. But that was one of the first sort that, of international yeah, exhibitions. Yeah, it really was. I mean, obviously, you know, there'd been national exhibitions. Um, the French had been running them for years. The Royal Dublin Society had been running them back in the 18th century. More kind of craft exhibitions, I suppose we'd call them today. But the 1851 exhibition was held in Hyde Park in London uh, and they built this enormous cast iron and glass building which quickly was nicknamed the Crystal Palace. Um, and it covered about four acres and was so large that they decided to leave all the trees, you know, and just build around these massive oak trees and things. And um, they invited exhibitors from all over um, what was then the British Empire, but also from all over mainland Europe, um, North America, the Far East, um, North Africa, um, Russia, you name it. And um, people bought their, generally their kind of um, mass-produced items rather than their, their, their arts and crafts. And the idea was to kind of encourage international trade. And it was such a success that um, the French had a go at it. The Americans were very successful at running similar kind of ex- exhibitions. The British kept on doing 
doing them, but generally not as successfully as the first go. Uh, and obviously, um, you know, it being such a big splash and also bringing lots of visitors to London, it was a big tourist thing. Uh, people in Cork got very interested in it. And the very next year, in 1852, Cork held its first national exhibition. This was moderately successful. So in 1883, they did another one. And then they decided to go one better back in 1902 and go for an international exhibition of art and um, science and engineering and sport and culture. You you just imagine it. It was there from aquariums to having the Wimbledon champion play all comers to Gaelic football to amusements to um, you mentioned the water slide there. We'll, maybe we'll come back to that. And then art, photography, engineering, um, Podrick Pierce and his brother, their company was there exhibiting um, you know, memorials. Um, obviously, all the local businesses, but your Beamish and Crawford's, your um, your um, Murphy's Brewery, you know, the kind of people who'd be there. So it was it was a huge success for Cork, and um, managed to attract 1.9 million visits. The scale of this just seems off the charts. I mean, in a way, I've no- loads of questions amongst them. Why can't we do this now? Uh, but one of the more perhaps salient ones is who paid for this? And who, you know, brought about such a... There's a big vision involved in delivering There's this. There's an enormous vision. Um, what p- People love anniversaries. And 1902 was the 50th anniversary of Cork's first exhibition. So... When a gentleman called, as you mentioned, Edward Fitzgerald was elected um, Lord Mayor of Cork, uh, he suggested the idea, why don't we, you know... Those famous famous words. (laughs) Why don't we celebrate the 50th anniversary, show the country what we can do, um, and Ireland was having one of its periodic periods of emigration and economic recession, so the hope was to kind of help kickstart the Irish economy. Uh, And pretty pretty soon and pretty fast... A lot of people came on board. I mean, I when I say a lot, I mean everyone from the trades unions to the big employers, from Ulster unionists down from Belfast, um, from you know people much more on the Republican or at least the nationalist side of the spectrum, civic leaders, the churches, uh, sporting organisations, cultural organisations, Conor Nagelga, um, you name it. Everybody wanted to be this involved in this, and even the British government got involved. Uh, which was very unusual because usually they just kept away from these kind of exhibitions and let, let local enterprise run them. Um, but through a, um, a body called the Department of Agricultural and Technological Instruction, they provided quite a lot of money and specialist knowledge to, to you know help the exhibition. Um, and it was paid for by largely by the exhibitors. So subscriptions were taken out from the exhibitors, they paid by the square foot. The bigger the stall, your Powers Whiskies would have a bigger stall than Mrs. Murphy's Flower Shop, for example, obviously. Um, so they paid in advance. Then visitors paid for the attractions. Um, and then after the exhibition, the council had this brilliant idea that they would auction off all of the buildings or parts of the buildings and sell them back to the people who just paid to come to see the exhibition in the first place. Well, maybe that's an opportunity then to talk about this fabulous postcard that you have here, which displays how it was. And I am staggered 
It's vast, the area, and the buildings look incredible. Like, why did we lose them? That seems disappointing. Um, it's hard to describe. There's certainly a central cupola, uh, if that's the correct term for it. Yeah, um, that's right. With, with, it seems, sort of four tower posts around it, um, a veranda area with steps leading up to it. There's a big green flag with presumably a golden harp on it. Yes, that, that would be the, um, the, uh, yeah, the, 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 the harp that was, the flag that was generally used to kind of denote Irish nationhood would be the um the golden the golden harp on the green ground yeah Aaron Gabrau is often the the motto then underneath that yeah it, it was actually a complex of probably about 30 or 40 buildings and the postcard that you're looking at there which incidentally is available in the Cork Public Museum um shows the 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 main buildings which were the industrial building and the machinery hall um the industrial building and machinery hall covered the area approximately of a small shopping centre. So bigger than Dunn's in in, um, um, in Bishopstown, um, but maybe not as big as the Wilton shopping centre, but that kind of a size of thing, right? So an enormous surface area, and inside that there were all the exhibits and stuff. But then aside from that, there was the art galleries. There was there was a concert hall which sat two thousand people. Um, there was the scale is incredible. Six restaurants, three different bars, lots of different stalls, like you know, kind of more carnival stuff, like shooting galleries and um, having your picture while you wait. Um, and then little kiosks selling cigars, flowers, postcards. Um, souvenirs, all that kind of stuff. And what kind of size of city was Cork at this point in time? I mean, we're Edwardian Cork. Here. Yeah, yeah, Edwardian Cork is kind of the, kind of the shorthand way of describing it. It was a population of about 80,000 people. Um, so what considerably is- smaller than we are today. Now, it did run for somewhere in the region of 18 months, but 1.9 million visitors. Do we have any breakdown of, of national oh, oh, to international? Sorry, sorry, Dave. Those 1.9 million were just between May and November in the first season. <laughs> <laughs> and and breakdown national and international? They're, that's not available. Mm. I, I think um, quite a lot of those visitors would have been repeat visitors. Mm. So um, that's why it's kind of careful to say visits rather than visitors. And there uh-huh, certainly yes. was a big upswing of... American and British um, uh, holidaymakers, um, and the uh, the committee had tried their best to get the message out in advance with um, travel agents, people like Thomas Cook in England uh, and others in America, let them know what was happening, and basically sell a package where you'd come on the on the um, liner to Cove or Queenstown as it was then, you come into town on the train. You'd take in the exhibition for a couple of days, and then maybe you'd go on down to Killarney, mm. or you'd, mm. you'd do some touring. Maybe even bicycle touring was a big thing at the time. So it was kind of um, people would be coming for for a month, maybe. Packages, package, exactly a package wow. thing. You hold at your your hotels, your trains. Sounds great. Sign, sign me up. Yeah, for um, time traveller, we, we could do we, it. We talked about Fitzgerald's Park, so I mean, for for you know, I presume the majority of people listening to this podcast will be a Cork audience and familiar with the layout of the city. So Ooh. are we talking almost like, uh, we're not as far back as uh, sort of the Mercy Hospital and on upwards, are we? But certainly the Cork Cricket Ground. Yeah, the the, the, the grounds were 45 acres altogether. So if you were at where the skate park is now, yeah. um, that would kind of be the, the um, eastern side of the grounds and then they would run, run through the Cork County Cricket Club, through what's now the Tennis Club, through the park, all the way down through UCC Sports Grounds, all the way as far as um, Thomas Davis Bridge and the Western Road. So, um, And 
all basically everything between the Mardike and then going northwards towards the Lee. So 45 acre site. Um, and some of it was quite well landscaped, um, but other parts of it were actually kind of more turned over for agricultural exhibits. So they had people growing uh, tobacco or f soft fruit or trying different kinds of trees that might grow well in Ireland for commercial silviculture. Or, um, you know, there was an area where they were um, raising fish in ponds because um, a lot of this was about... You know, there was a big element of fun, and, maybe, and we'll come on to that, I'm sure, but there was also a serious side. They were trying to persuade Irish landowners, especially farmers, small farmers as well, of, of moving beyond subsistence and finding cash crops, be that tobacco, be that soft fruit, be that trying to persuade fishermen to, to grow uh, mussels on on ropes or oysters on ropes and then sell those mm. rather than just, just fishing alone. Well, it, it struck me when you talked about the exhibitions and, and from the mid-1800, the 90, mid-19th century. And, you know, it is that time of modernity, of oh, industry, yeah. of organisation. I mean, sports became organised in around this time. Like everybody, there seemed to be this this growing just sort of, um, you know, in a viral way, it spread through, like, let's organise, let's co collectively come together and, and, and create rules and organisations and societies mm. and, mm -hmm. and develop and push forward. And this is, this is a reflection this of that. Is exactly an outcome of that. Cork was ready for that? Cork welcomed well, Cork this? Cork was ready for it and, and in some ways Cork was probably, well, Cork was certainly ahead of many Irish towns in terms of its grasping of these modern things. But even small things like in 1898 we had our first electric tram system and the Belfast people didn't get theirs until eight years later and this was obviously a source of some pride in Cork because we had basically leapfrogged a much, you know, by then bigger and more prosperous place, and we were kind of leading the way in terms of that technology, you know. Uh, and Cork was extremely well connected, especially by railways. There was something like 900 kilometres of railway line in, in the county at the time. So you could go anywhere on train, apart from NAD. <laughs> <laughs> Randomly. Sorry, sorry. Sorry, any, NAD. Sorry, any la NAD listeners. You got left out. Um, really remarkable. This Edward Fitzgerald man obviously didn't do it all on his own. Oh, God, no. But he spearheaded it at least, and as Lord Mayor was able to sp make the things happen. Um, and, and later, the, the, some of the area for this site got, got named after him. What's, what's that? As, I know that's kind of leaping forward a little bit. I know but that's a very good point. I mean, Fitzgerald was a very charismatic man. Um, and as you say, you know, he, he, there were something like two million individual items of correspondence that were processed by the people who were just booking the spaces, right? And there's obviously no way a single person could manage any of that. So his role was as kind of the MC, the avuncular host, the man who chivied people along, who chaired meetings and, and uh, divvied up work uh, and, and networked. And he was extremely good at networking and it's his personality his way he was a working man he was originally a, um, a, a carpenter he'd become a building contractor gone into politics um, and he never lost his kind of common touch but he was quite able to sit down next to the queen of england and chat away and um, did he oh yeah where was he from do we know 
Actually, I don't know. I think yeah. he was from the Ovens area. Mm. So he wasn't, a, I don't think he was a city man, but mm. he wasn't from far out of town. And I was going to ask you about the great and the good. Uh, do we have any sort of standout names of people we know came? Uh, well, the funny thing is, obviously, somebody who's famous in 1902 isn't necessarily mm. <laughs> going to be... It's not Charlie Chaplin era, that, is no, it? No, we're a little bit early for Charlie oh, Chaplin. Okay. But there was there were, were a number of films made at the, at the exhibition. Well, I've seen footage. Yeah. I've seen footage. Yeah, I'm, I've, I've always been a film festival man and, and, and was on the board of the festival for a number of years but over the years at the festival there have been screenings of oh who are the guys I think think you're thinking of Mitchell and Kenyon yes exactly Uh, Union Jacks uh, flying on on Patrick Street (laughs) but just extraordinary to see you know um, a a street you're so familiar with and to see big Union Jacks flying on it because of course it was a British city yeah well and uh, yeah and and they would have especially when they were filming the um, exhibition there was a lot of excitement that the king would come um, in the first season, he actually came in the second season, so there was quite a strong pro-British mood amongst some, uh, some of the population. Obviously, not all of them. There was also the end of the first, of oh, sorry, the second Boer War, and the Irish troops, the Monster Fusiliers, and the like, were, were returning home, and the British, and I suppose you have to say the Irish, had won the war. So there was quite a lot of jingoism, quite a lot of nationalism, uh, and kind of a British flavour to the nationalism. It has to be said. Um, but uh, Mitchell and Kenyon were these two guys who, who were early adopters of, of, of film cameras, but they deliberately filmed crowds because they knew that the crowds would want to come and see themselves precisely. on cinema screens. They, which they was, were business people. From a sociological perspective uh, now, yeah. it's fantastic because yeah. you, you see... You can uh, see all these faces. Moving in this slightly slow fashion, where they almost look like they're animated yeah, and uh, yeah. staring at the camera and all, all like 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 we still are today. <laughs> we, still, we, we haven't actually evolved. We just have more Delighted. cameras. We're being, we're being filmed. <laughs> Woo. And all the same people things. putting things on Twitter or, or TikTok. <laughs> so it ran for two seasons. Was that what? What was the story with that? Well, that was very unusual. I mean, you, you meant you, you you raised the question of um, of you know what happened to the the structures. What, in all of the photographs and um, postcards, etc., I mean, they look very permanent, very solid, but they were actually temporary structures. And this was a very standard thing in the um, uh, world of exhibitions. They were intended, and I'm talking about across the globe, they were intended to be a bit like a firework display that would be amazing to see. People would ooh and ah, and they'd be inspired by it. But then it would disappear, and then you would have to take that memory, that inspiration, and do something with it. They weren't necessarily about building a new suburb or building a new city. Um, What tended to happen an awful lot is um, the land afterwards would be turned into a park. So this is what happened in San Francisco. by um, the Golden Gate Bridge. There's a large park, which was part of an exhibition site. It happened in Chicago. Um, You end up with things like the Eiffel Tower, which is basically a leftover thing from the exhibition that was never supposed to be there long term. Um, And Cork was the same. So uh, um, we ended up with Fitzgerald's Park and the playing fields, you know, um, and uh, the Cork Public Museum um, and uh, even Ford's Motorworks um, kind of comes indirectly out of this, that people were inspired to kind of think, okay, well, what else can we do? What can we do with these, these ideas? You know, let's do something with it. And perhaps Henry Ford's knowledge of his ancestors, uh, ancestral lands were, were further o- 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 awakened. Part. Yeah, yeah. And he may have been aware of the event, but um, I suppose there's a whole other story about how he got here. But um, 
yeah, I think there's a, you can draw an indirect line between the exhibition and the and the uh, the Ford's works. I'm looking at a picture of Mardike Walk. Was this the the way down into it? Um, yes, the main entrance to the exhibition was more or less where the main entrance to the park is today. Um, to get there, you would have passed a ticket booth, which is more or less where um, the little lane running down towards the skate park is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a ticket booth. You'd buy your ticket. And then you'd pass down along the Mardike uh, and then enter through the grounds there. And the ticket pricing was... was uh... The ticket pricing depended on the, the day or the time of day, whether it was a season ticket, a child season ticket. Um, some people, um, you know, were bought in, in large kind of groups of 100 people and they got a very cheap rate. And the organisers were very keen to especially get rural people. Usually um, the parish priest, obviously, would be the guy who would kind of corral Come them. Come on now, we're going up for we're, a trip up, up, up the car now. And, and they all go off on the train and they would get a very cheap deal or possibly even free entry. Because the idea was to try and, especially small farmers, is kind of... Sh- Jeez, lads, look, this is what you can do with your, with your land. Um, and obviously there were very high prices for things like the opening ceremony, the closing mm, ceremony, mm, the royal visits. Saturdays or yeah, yeah, like, holidays, feast yeah, days. Yeah, so, so there was, it was always cheaper to go in the evening. But I don't know why I've randomly wondered how many of the Irish that went to visit were still speaking Osgoelga at that point well, in time. Very interestingly, um, because the actual population of Cork speaking Irish every day at home would have been pretty low but it was Even actually in 1900 wow. hmm, it was actually but it was actually growing at this point and growing quite quickly and quite a number of the sources who talk about the exhibition make a point of saying it's really noticeable you see little knots of Irish speakers near the fountain or or near a certain stall or you know talking to the craftsman and the pierces um works or whatever and and practicing their irish but these aren't necessarily you know native speakers it's these are people who are going to evening classes and learning irish wow and there was um a, um it was the beginning of that spirit that led yeah to it was yeah i mean it was it was at this point was the celtic the celtic revival was in the late in the 1800s wasn't it yeah, and yates and all of that gone and the yeah. last and this ties in very closely with that and some of the same people who are on the organizing committees are also you know lady gregory they're uh, involved Markovich. with all those other people um, oh okay yeah. so there's a yeah there's a so there's a bit there's a British nationalism and a jingoism, but there's also, there's, it's everything. It's everything. It's the mix of life in and, Ireland at that time. And it is, and I think because it was intended um, for economic well-being and there was a large element of fun about the place, I think people put away aside their, their political differences and their cultural differences mm. and they worked for the common good of the country. This image that I'm seeing of the Mardike Walk, and it's recognisable as the Mardike today. Mm. Uh, beautiful cast iron arch uh, with a with a lamp uh, in An the centrepiece yeah, yeah. uh, held up. Gorgeous. That house just behind it that looks thatched, that's not the public museum. No, it's not. Um, what we're looking at there is, is a thing called the Normandy Cottage. Mm. Um, and the Normandy Cottage was actually an exhibit at the exhibition in 1903. Um, and... Uh, the reason it was called the Normandy Cottage is very simple because um, it was built by a Norman builder from the north of France who brought all of the materials and his crew over on a boat from Normandy, from Cannes in Normandy, uh, and constructed this. And then um, the organising committee installed a, a family of Nor- Normandy peasants to live in it for six months. 
<laughs> so there was Monsieur not, Colette. Not quite PC, perhaps, no, in these days. No, and they are referred to as French peasants. Okay. There's Monsieur Colette and Madame Colette, little Mademoiselle Colette. And they, they lived there, uh, and people would come into their house and wander around and look at what they were cooking and what they were eating, what they were wearing. They were an exhibit. Uh, were there, like, that sounds sort of like slightly off, but also kind of like gentle. Was there anything arguably worse from a modern sensibility in terms uh, of native yeah, displays? Yeah, there was actually, yeah. In the first season, there was a thing called the Cairo Street. Um, and it, it seems unlikely to me that the people... At, working at the exhibit were actually from Cairo. I think they were just generally from the South Mediterranean somewhere. They were a bit dark looking. <laughs> yeah, so they might have been from Algeria or mm. Libya or possibly um, uh, Syria, uh, but they were certainly... Arabic of some Arabic kind. Um, extraction anyway. And um, there were... Because these exhibitions have become quite a feature of Edwardian life, there were troops of entertainers from that part of the world who would literally go from Dusseldorf this year to Wolverhampton mm. next year to mm. Cork the following year yeah. and it was a living mm. right uh, and they would bring their their um, exhibit and stalls with them and they'd also been lots of artifacts from their home country so brass lamps Turkish uh, sorry not Turkish I mean carpets um, textiles anything like that they would sell these to the customers but they would also give demonstrations of kind of a version of Arabic culture. I don't know how authentic. Mm. Mm. There was a, a well, belly... It would have been hugely exotic. It would have been wildly you know, exotic to anybody. Whatever level of authenticity it had, it would have been a, a, a huge education well, yeah, for almost I, everybody. I think so, because I mean, only the very wealthiest would have been to that mm. side of the world, mm. at the Mediterranean by then. Uh, and for the typical court person to see a belly dancer mm. uh, or to see someone Snake smoking charmers. a hookah or, or, mm. or, or to see mm. a room set up to look like a, a, an apartment in Cairo would have been very exotic. Mm. Now, unfortunately, the belly dancing didn't last very long because the, the um, Catholic Church and the Church of Ireland <laughs> quickly got together <laughs> and ooh, put the kibosh on ooh, it. <laughs> ooh, hang on a second. Ooh, there are hips gyrating here. <laughs> That's right. And and there's not much clothing. <laughs> this seems sensual. That's not a word we like. Um, let me. Was there any Indian snake charmers or beds of nails? Or there was no. probably no. Oh, there wasn't. No, I don't think so. No. Um, I think the, the street in Cairo um, was, was about was, was about it. Was the, and, and was the, the exoticism. Normandy, the Normandy cottage. Yeah. Um, the slide I've spoken about is something. It's hard not to forget once you've seen the image of it. It looks. Mm. It's it's um, how to describe it. I mean, it, the it looks like boats that you sit in that get dragged back up on a on a train track or a rail track and then mm -hmm. down you slide are you do you know much what, yeah what yeah that's that's more or less how it worked um it's it's a thing called a water chute spelt c-h-u-t-e and these had started to be uh, a fact a feature of indoor exhibitions initially in the 1890s and they got bigger and they got more spectacular as time passed um and the one in Cork was very unusual because it um, it was built in the river, Lee. Usually these things were built in artificial uh, ponds. So, for example, if your listeners go to Herbert Park in Dublin, Dublin 4, you will find a, a beautiful pond there. It's completely ornamental and it's a leftover from the water chute that the Dubs had. Uh, it wouldn't be there otherwise. It was kind of the crash pond that the boats came in. But we had the river itself. So this thing was about 80 feet high and about 250 feet long, um, quite steeply sloped. And as you said, Dave, the, the boats were these little flat-bottomed, sturdy little punts um, that would be dragged by an electric motor up to the top of the slide. 
and then turned around and then the lucky passengers would get in about six passengers uh, and a little oarsman at the back um, and the passengers would just be sitting there in their normal clothes, no life jackets, no seat belts, obviously, because this is 1902. We don't do that. <laughs> and uh, there was a brake um, which would be released and you would hurtle down this ramp, gathering speed. Now, to ensure that you went as fast as possible, the rails were polished and then smothered in lard. So there was almost no friction there at all. And you'd scream down the bottom. I'd say by the time you hit the bottom, you'd be going 40, 50 miles an hour. And the punts were flat bottomed. So they wouldn't carve into the river. They would just skim and bounce down the river. And you can see that in this image. There's quite the splash. And it does look like the the the, the, the boat is just going to shoot forward and continue to shoot forward for a period. How do they get dragged back? Back, do we know? Well, the, is what, this, there's, the, there's, there's a, a little guy with, with an oar sitting at the back mm, of the, the stern of the boat. Mm, and his job was to oh, right, paddle yeah, to a little landing back. stage. You'd all get out shaking and wet and going again, again, again. And then he would return the, the little fierce punt. excitement, the yeah. roller coaster uh, of the day. Yeah, well, we had a roller coaster as well. Oh my goodness me! What wasn't there at this? Is this how Haji Bey came to court? It is. Yeah, in 1903. The For second those who season. don't know, he's the man who made the uh, Turkish delight. That's right. Uh, an Armenian, as it turns out. That's correct. Yeah, um, it was a bit ironic because uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the that Turks was around the, the time. Armenians weren't getting was on it around very the time? Well. It was a little earlier, but they they didn't get on by, by that time either. Um, which is probably one of the reasons that he, he came to Cork. Um, and uh, he immediately set up a confectionery business uh, in the exhibition um, and he sold and he gave away samples and built a great reputation. So it wasn't that hard after that just to settle down with his family and start building a business on McCurtain Street, which he did for, for many years until his death. And what is the sort of maybe global context that this occurred in? What was significant? What was significantly? Ha- I mean, obviously, like you know, the next decades, a well, series of decades. In fact, the rest of the century. Yeah, but it all kicks off. Look, you know, a lot of unification around Europe. Like Germany is unified, and yes, Italy is unified. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I think I suppose that the context for the 1902 was obviously the end of the Second World War was mm. a big news story. Mm. The, the coronation of um, Edward VII, which had taken place the previous year. Um, and also, which something that had long-term repercussions was Britain and Japan went into a military partnership in 1902. Um, and that's why the Japanese Imperial Fleet came to Queenstown um, a whole flotilla of Japanese Navy boats because they had come over to England as a courtesy visit and thought, sure, why are we here? We might as well pop into Queenstown and have a little... Well, I mean, you know, they're not going to be back in the area anytime soon. I mean, mean, Japan itself has uh, has probably only very recently opened up. Very recently and rapidly modernised. And the, the Japanese Navy ships were... Wasn't Japan kind of sealed built. to the outside world for like it hundreds of years? It was until the 1850s and 60s yeah. and then rapidly modernised. And then they went to war with the um, the Russians in 1905 and everybody said, and forgive me if you've heard this before, oh, the poor Japanese, they haven't a chance. The Russians will steamroll them and uh, Japan will just be pulverised. And the Japanese completely smashed them. Mm. And the poor Russians got an awful shock because mm. they had this idea that they were you know, militarily impregnable. And uh, they would have seen themselves as European uh, fighting an Asian yeah, nation exactly. and thinking there's an, inhi- there's an inherent them. superiority yep. straight off the bat. It was a very rude awakening for them. Um, and, you know, some, th- this is the beginning of the rise of Japanese militarism mm. as well, which mm. obviously 
by 1941 was a, a different beast altogether. Mm. So I mean, this is what's happening in the in the pre-war thing. But um, it's, um, it's it's a relatively stable period in Europe. Um, this period and relatively stable in the United States. Um, and uh, the, the the First World War actually kind of came came of something of a surprise to many people who'd kind of said, you know, because things are going so well economically and we're trading with each other, we'd be mad to start a war. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's easy to see that in hindsight for the yes. for the mistake it was. Starting starting war is always mad. Mm. Um, as we're currently experiencing, and you kind of go, why isn't this happening? Uh, and, in that, and in those days, I guess, people had tied themselves so tightly together with various uh, treaties and... Indeed, uh, and, yeah. And, uh, there was the Entente Cordiale between the, the British and the French um, a couple of years later, uh, incidentally for which they decided they would celebrate by having a large international exhibition because that's what you, how you celebrate what, stuff. What, you um, what was its long-term impact on Cork? So a city of 50,000 people, relatively small cities. You know, Belfast potentially at that time was still larger than Dublin. Oh, yes, it definitely. Was, yeah, definitely. Uh, it was certainly the industrial powerhouse of Ireland. Um, so, you know, Cork is... is, is you know, very much, uh, you know, batting, what, what, are they, what do they say? Uh, hitting, a, batting above its rage. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> punching above its own <laughs> thank you, way. Thank yeah. you, thank you. I, I mean, let's put it this way. Belfast is, is a wonderful city, um, but they have never, and I'm talking up to the, the to present day, they have never held an exhibition on this scale. They never did, and they probably never will. This was, this exhibition was totally out of scale for the size of the place that, that produced it. Um, I wonder, did we miss out in in two thousand and two? Yeah, we might have done. We might have done. The city of culture was two thousand and five, and there wasn't even much linking of it. So, what? How do you feel that the memory is of this I, in Cork? I think um, on the on the one hand, the events that happened between nineteen thirteen and nineteen twenty three mm, that we've mm, been um, mm, commemorating mm. And, and celebrating and yeah. thinking about for the last <laughs> it's hard um, to look <laughs> nine years beyond those. Um, th- by the 1920s and 30s, where people started thinking about the past in, in Cork, those were just so dominant and so um, life-changing and, and significant that stuff beforehand became smaller by comparison. There was also prior slight queasiness about the royal element, mm. um, because even though there were a considerable number of Corkonians who would have been very unhappy about the royal visits... There were thousands and thousands who turned out, waved their flags, cheered the king, and there would have been a certain queasiness about remembering that. Um, so on the one hand, in what you might call the official history, it, it kind of f- fell out of favour. It would occasionally get mentioned in, in newspaper articles, mm. uh, but really kind of was forgotten. I don't remember anything significant being done in 2002. Um, but on the other hand, when you start talking to people in Cork they'll either have not heard of it or they'll say, oh yeah, sure, my great-grandmother was there and look, I have this jog that she bought. And did you, cetera, get, did you get much um, local memory history in, in the book, like that sort of a thing? I well, remember hearing... Yeah, we did and we didn't, Dave. Mm. I mean, um, myself and Dan were very um, keen to have the voices of normal people because it was quite easy to get the voices of the administrators and the mm. Lord Mayor um, and the, you know, the, the hoity-toities. It was quite easy to get that. But it, was, it turned out to be extremely difficult to get memories. Obviously, they would be gone by now. But even diaries and things that mentioned it, we really, really tried. The, what we did manage to do is we had a kind of antiques roadshow day and people bought in their souvenirs and objects associated with the exhibition. 
Um, and uh, there was all sorts of stuff, quite amazing, embroidery. Um, some souvenirs were made in Japan before the exhibition and bought here and put on sale. So they were very organized, the Japanese. <laughs> um, and um, then other souvenirs were made locally or printed in Germany. Or, you know, and then there were souvenirs to the royal visit. And so on, on the kind of the informal, casual side, mm. there was a lot of families who could say, oh, yes, such and such was there. Or my mother was there. She bought this. Or we got our piano at the exhibition, whatever. But it was quite hard to kind of drill down and get diaries or postcards. Or and, you know, we've, we, you already referenced it, but, you know, you can kind of see why when such traumatic events happened so soon after this, mm. why this can seem like you know, as, as significant, huge an event as it was for Cork, mm. uh, it, it can seem trivial in comparison to the trauma that came. Mm. Um, mm. And, and, you know, we live with that history today. Yeah, you know, it is. It's a, it's a living history. It is. It isn't it is. over. It isn't no, done. No, it's not over. I mean, um, yeah, you're right. Yeah. What drew drew you to the book? Uh, what knowledge are you? Do you have Irish roots? Are you a Cork man? No, no, I'm not a Cork man. I have no Irish roots, um, and I didn't really have any interest in Cork history at all until about two thousand. Um, I had done history in school, but I didn't study it in university, um, and. I had been away from Cork for about 10 years more and then settled back here around about the millennium. And um, I just started picking up a few books and getting curious. Um, and then I was teaching and I wanted examples to show my students of, of buildings or designs or urban environments. And so I started taking photographs. Um, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of photographs and then through the photographs and walking the streets getting more curious and then now it's kind of terminal incurable <laughs> interest in history I don't think I'll be saved there's no coming back no. Um, it's a fabulous looking book that yourself and Daniel Breen have put together uh, Dr Tom Spaulding and I'm very grateful for this conversation it's been very enlightening and enjoyable and uh, you know even though I have seen footage of it it's, it still makes you sort of want to go back and, and see what it was like and to wander through those halls mm, mm. Um, were, were there any did artists document it um to, you know, any, to any great degree. Obviously, photographers did. Photographers and that was part did. of the modernity, the modernity of the Indeed, time. Indeed, yeah. Um, we, we haven't come across that, that many paintings or, or drawings. And, and it's a bit of a mystery. And even in terms of photography, much of the photography is the official stuff. Um, there must have been people wealthy enough to have you know, cameras at the time. And the box brownie wasn't that far, I think, in the future. So it was, it was certainly coming down in price. But we haven't found a great deal... Of, of personal photography um so that's a pity but i mean if 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 your listeners are interested i think the best place to start here is, is to go into the court public museum in fitzgerald's mm. park and you can view those films that you mentioned mm. and there's also a case of um exhibits there um, that give you a flavor of the exhibition and a, a large panorama that shows you the main buildings um so that's probably where i started and our book um the Cork International Exhibition 1902-93 is still available secondhand. I'm afraid it's not available from the shops anymore. Uh, so if you look for that online, I'm sure you'll be able to find a copy at not too great a price. And the back cover of the uh, book features a shot of 
presumably the craftsmen who made the buildings that are mm. being constructed uh, behind them and such expressive faces. They're all wearing, you know, heavy aprons and they it's it's actually a uniform, isn't it? Well, they're, they're wearing, in, the, in those days, each trade would have its own costume, really? essentially. So painters would dress quite differently to, mm. to, to carpenters or, or plasterers or whatever. I suppose it's, and are these carpenters that we're looking at That's a mixture there. Uh, you've got some carpenters, you've probably got uh, plumbers, you've got painters and tilers, um, some and then you've got caps. general labourers, lots of flat caps. Uh, some bowlers. Yeah. yeah, bowlers would probably be the superintendents mm. or the supervisors. There's definitely a class thing with a bowler. It would be it so would the hats be would indicate your status and who you yes, were. Uh, sure. a few, a few, one or two beards, lots of moustaches, Moustaches Loads of young be. fellas looking very sullen. Um, probably there's probably I'd say there's a few hurlers in there. I'd say there were, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. One, oh, there's a bowler cat. There's a bowler hat on sideways. Oh, he's a bit slightly he's a bit tilted. Cocky. Yeah, he's he's a bit a jack the lad. This one, she's just a mean looking fella at the back. Great faces. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lovely UCC image from the the um, special collections there. But uh, we got permission to use it, and it is it is a fabulous shot. Uh, we'll conclude just on a, on a book that you've gifted me, and thank you. Your most recent work, presumably. Uh, that, yeah, that's that, that's um, the, yes, the most recent thing I've published. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's called Layers. It's about street names, and it's available from um, Nanonagel Place. Um, they have it in their bookshop there. And so, is is this? Um is about the Osquelga aspect to it? Yeah, that's that's a large part of it. A large yeah. part of it, uh, because you know when when you say the word layers, I mean that's something that has brought my interest in it. Actually, even even in the stories in 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 history generally, um, it's that sense of going around Ireland and there's a there's another story behind the first story. The first story is is the name of something in English, mm. uh, and the other story is is the name that lies behind that and what that says. Mm. And that actually has drawn me into an interest in 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 Ooh, place names. Yeah, yeah, and and in and in the stories that lie behind them and in, and how they change and what that means. I don't know it, that that. Definitely, it's 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 a vexed and, and complex issue, and maybe something that we could come back to on another occasion. But Absolutely. Uh, there's quite a lot in that book about um, how, how Irish was used, and it has to be said, abused in Irish in Cork place names. Great. I look forward to reading it. It's called Layers, The Design, History and Meaning of Public Street Signage in Cork and Other Irish Cities by you, Dr. Tom Spaulding, with a foreword by Phil Baines, and I'm very grateful for it as a gift. Uh, I will read it uh, on my holidays, which are forthcoming. And thank you for being a part of this Cork History Matters podcast. Thank you for inviting me in. For more Red FM podcasts, go to redfm.ie forward slash podcasts.